Hey, well, good morning to you. Uh, if we have never met before, my name is Matt Luloyan, and I serve as the pastor here of Liberty Church. Uh, we're part of a family of churches and a couple different church networks. Uh, we're part of a network called Redeemer City to City. Uh, we're part of a network called the Acts 29 Network, uh, and we're also part of a family of churches that all are called Liberty Church, uh, most of them in the greater Philadelphia area, and then us out here kind of in central Pennsylvania. Um, so it's an honor to have you with us this morning for whatever reason you find yourself here. Uh, and we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, in the Word of God today as we do uh, each week. So if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 11 through 22 here in just a moment. Um, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that Tim just mentioned a moment ago, uh, that's going to start on page 976. Uh, and for the rest of you, you're, you, know, you might be using a device as well. Uh, there's, an, there's something in the bulletin about this in the announcements. You're welcome to use the, the app, the Liberty Church app. You heard Annie uh, announce that the past couple weeks. There's sermon uh, notes on that app where the scripture passage itself and then a place for you to take notes and send them to yourself is there too. Um, so I am going to always assume that if you're on your phone, that's what you're doing uh, during this time. And that's probably naive of me, but that's, that helps me. So um, you can use that as well. The the famous reformer, Martin Luther, uh, once said that a seven-year-old knows what the church is, but that he had to write thousands of words in order to explain what he or she, that seven-year-old, intuitively understood. And isn't that true? That, That the church is both beautifully simple and frustratingly complex. And I think if one of those seven-year-olds, and some of you have seven-year-olds in your home with you, if they were to ask you to explain what the church is, and why we as a church can, can stand uh, up on a Sunday morning and unite our voices and affirm that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We'd find ourselves probably scrambling for a succinct and coherent answer to, well, what is the church? I don't doubt for many of us that we'd be able to convey one of the many pictures that exist in Scripture about what the church is, like the body of Christ, or the family of faith, or the colony of heaven, or a pilgrim people. Uh, according to, to one scholar's count, there are 96 different pictures or analogies applied to the church in the pages of Scripture. But what do those pictures, what do those analogies actually mean? What is the church? Why did Jesus establish the church? And also, why, with a thousand different bad examples and a ton of baggage in the history of the world and our own personal history for many of us, can we still declare with a clear conscience, I believe in the church? Today uh, and leading up to today, my hope, my prayer for us is that we will, maybe for some of us, gain for the first time, but for for others of us, at least be renewed in the framework we have in Scripture for what the church is and why that is so important, why that matters so much for us and for, for the world. So let's turn our hearts and minds to the words of the Apostle Paul in this letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 11 through 22. Uh, so listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Let us hear what you will speak today, Lord. For you speak peace to your people. And you give hope to the hopeless. And you give joy and renewal to the weary. Speak peace to your people this morning. To, to we, to those who turn in faith our hearts toward you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as Bob mentioned, uh, we are continuing in this series in the Apostles' Creed as we've been uh, through this summer. And the Apostles' Creed is this statement of faith uh, that, that surfaced in the second century, early in the history of the church. There's another early church creedal statement that was first formed in uh, the fourth century called the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed affirms many of the same things that the Apostles' Creed affirms. There's actually a lot of overlapping language between the two. But one difference is that the Nicene Creed adds a couple words about the church, which I think are really helpful for us as we try to understand what is the church and why did Jesus establish it. The Nicene Creed affirms this. It says, We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So in the Apostles' Creed, it's, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. The Nicene Creed, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And there is a ton of meaning packed into that short statement. Those four adjectives in that sentence have come to be known as the four marks or the four attributes of the church. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Those four adjectives, four attributes. And these marks or attributes come from, from all of the teachings about the church in Scripture, amid those 96 different pictures and metaphors for what the church is. But what I love about Ephesians 2, among other things, is that in Ephesians 2, in the passage that we are looking at today, we get to glimpse all four of those attributes. So we're going to walk our way through and look at each, at least, in, at least briefly, uh, with our time this morning. So first, there is one church. There's one church. Uh, I was at a pastor's conference a while back, and the speaker of this conference in one of the sessions opened with a question. And he said, how many churches are there in your city where you live? And he gave a couple moments of silence for people just to think about that. Um, I've never actually looked that specific number up, so I started to think, okay, how many churches are there in the Harrisburg region? There certainly are hundreds of them. And I guess depending on, like, how you draw the lines of, like, the capital area, uh, maybe it's as many as a 1,000 churches. And by the time I kind of had a number roughly thought of in my head, he came back and said, the answer is one. 
the answer is one, just one. Jesus has only one church. Okay, that's, a, that's a great gotcha line, right? Don't you love it when speakers do that? They like set you up and then like just spike it right back on you. It's a great gotcha line, but, but what it does is it exposes just how far we've drifted away from Jesus' vision of the church. It's not that there haven't been incredibly valid reasons to divide and to create denominations over the past 2,000 years. The drift is that when asked, almost to a person, we will first think about the different tribes, the different styles, different types of churches that exist, rather than the truth that in the eyes of Jesus there is only one church. And though we see all four of these churches, the church's attributes in this text, this is clearly the focal point of the Apostle Paul's words here. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. It's this port city in modern-day Turkey. It's around the middle of the first century. And the overwhelming issue facing the church is this massive rift between Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. Jews trace their lineage back to Abraham. They're the chosen people of God. And so with few exceptions throughout the history of the Jewish people, Gentiles have either been their oppressors or their conquered enemies or their servants or a snare or hindrance to their worship of God. That's the relationship, the primary relationships that have existed between Jews and Gentiles. But now Gentiles are starting to put their faith, their trust in Jesus, and they're beginning to follow him. And in melting pot cities like Ephesus, this comes to a head. Do the differences between these groups mean that they need to form two different kinds of churches, a church for Jewish Christians and a church for Gentile Christians? And Paul's answer here clearly is an emphatic no. The Jews were God's chosen people, but what happened throughout the history of the Jewish people was that they over and over again rejected God. They opted for their traditions. They opted for their laws over God himself in many instances. The Gentiles, on the other hand, they were rebellious people who went after gods that really were no gods at all. So there are two different types of rebellion. There's two different types of lostness. There's two different ways of creating enmity with God. But there's one way of reconciliation with God, and that's through Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says in verses 15 and 16, that he has created in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, he might reconcile both to God in his body through the cross. And the implications of this are incredibly far-reaching, far beyond just the rift between Jews and Gentiles. What this means is that no matter the difference in our backgrounds, racially, ethnically, socioeconomically, experientially, uh, no matter the thousand different specific nuanced ways you and I might rebel against God. We're all sinful. That's something we share. But there are individually in us are a thousand specific ways and even more that we might evidence that rebellion. No matter what that is for us, there are the one way back to the Father is through faith in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And because the only way that any of us are reconciled to God is that one way through Jesus, Jesus has one church. And this, what, what this does is this creates unity for us, not only our union with Christ as individuals, it creates unity for us with other Christians, with one another. And that's why the, the creed, the statement that we've, we've been saying for, for months now together, says, I believe in, a holy, in the Holy Catholic Church, and follows it up by saying, the communion of saints. This creates a communion of saints. So I want to ask you this morning to consider this. Are you experiencing the beauty of the communion of saints in Jesus' one church? 
Are you experiencing the beauty of the communion of saints in Jesus' one church? I have very little in common with, say, a Syrian refugee. And my life experience is very different from what, say, a black man's experience in our nation looks like. But if someone is united with Christ, I have more in common with that person than with someone who is exactly like me in every other ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic respect, but who doesn't put their faith in Christ. And that's the power of what Jesus has done. That's the power of what Jesus does when he creates one new man in place of the two. He creates the communion of saints in his one church. So practically, I want you to think about this. Think about who you know that might help you fully experience or more fully experience the beauty of the communion of saints. And start here. There are other people in this room who you would never cross paths with or talk to were it not for a common faith in Christ. Or if you don't have faith in Christ at this point, a common interest or exploration of faith in Christ. And let's be real, you're intimidated to interact with that person at any deep level. Maybe you're intimidated to interact with that person at all. They're a lot older than you are. They're a lot younger than you are. They dress a lot differently than you do. They, they like different things than you do. But your faith in Christ means that you have something even more substantially in common than all of those differences. So engage with each other. Engage with even one or two of those people who intimidate you because they feel so different from from you. Because, Because this is the starting point to doing this even beyond our own church. If we can't do it here, then how are we ever going to continue to be able to do that outside this room where there's far more diversity in all of these different areas. There's one church. Jesus has one church. So experience the beauty of the communion of saints and start here with someone that you've been hesitant to engage with. Because certainly if Jesus can overcome this rift between Jews and Gentiles, he can overcome the obstacles we have with one another. Second, the church is holy. The church is holy. When, when we hear the word holy... We tend to think of perfection. That tends to be the, 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 the way we kind of go with that, that word and that meaning of that word. And certainly perfection is part of, of holiness. But the actual deep meaning of the word holy, the deeper meaning of the word holy is other or set apart. So God is holy because he is other. He is distinct from his creation. And this is actually what the creed is affirming when we speak of the holy church. That the church is God's set-apart people. It's people who have been called out from the world and called into communion with God and one another. And this idea of God's holy people was first applied to Abraham and, and his descendants, the people of Israel. But in the New Testament, there's some amazing passages. They apply the same kind of language and the same kind of God's prom- the same promises of God to the church. So, for example, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 says that the church is a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's the same identifier that God gave to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. So the church is holy, not because of its perfection in practice, because surely we have all are aware intimately that the church is not perfect in its practice. The church is holy because of its standing with God. The church is holy in the sense that it is sacred to God that it is the beloved people of God that God has consecrated to himself. It's the people God rescues. It's the people God cleanses. 
and he makes his church holy. And we see this kind of peppered through Paul's words here in the passage that we're looking at. Verse 13, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Jesus' shed blood is the cost of our cleansing. His sacrifice is what makes us holy as only he could make us holy. Verse 16, we are reconciled to God. So how do unholy people experience reconciliation, communion with a holy God who is other than his creation? Cleansed by Jesus, that's how that happens. We are made holy so that we might be in communion with God. Verse 21, we are growing into a holy temple. So the church is sacred and precious to God. Do you believe that? The church is sacred and precious to God. So this isn't some, what you and I do here, what you and I attempt to do here, this isn't some invention of modern man. This isn't something we just started up like a club and invited you to join. This isn't like a networking opportunity for you or a social gathering. The church is the people that have been set apart by God for himself. And moreover, by setting his people apart, God is also promising to make his people holy as he is holy, not just in their standing, but in their experience, one degree of glory to another. So if you've ever wondered why the church feels so messy, this is it. This is it. It's because at the very same moment, the church is the sacred, holy people of God and sinful people who are not yet experiencing the holiness that they have been called into. How will that experience of holiness come? How will our experience more and more line up with our standing before God? Through the church. Through the church. So think of it this way. The church is the arena in which the holiness of God and the unholiness of humanity go to do battle. And holiness wins. Right? We know how the story ends. God will complete the good work he has begun in us. But it is not a tranquil or comfortable thing. So here's the, here's the practical reality for us. We need to stop expecting that it will be. We need to stop expecting that it will be comfortable and tranquil. We need to stop looking for a church experience that is comfortable and tranquil. Because it, if it's actually doing what it's meant to do, it will not be. Uh, in theory, uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with Christian radio. But if you attempt to characterize the Christian life with taglines, like positive and encouraging, you will either miss the call of God upon his church, or you will be woefully unprepared when the reality of what that actually is like comes. You will either miss it, or you'll just be woefully unprepared for it. We are not inspired to holiness by positivity and encouragement. Those are not the pictures of how this happens in the word of God. How does holiness happen in the word of God? The pictures we're given are the pruning shears to cut out what is dead so that life and fruitfulness may come. The other picture is the furnace heated so hot that the impurities are burned out and only the gold remains. So the encouragement, the positivity comes from looking in the rearview mirror and seeing how God is doing that and has done that in your own life and in the church. And the encouragement and the positivity comes as we believe the promises of God that he's not wasting any of that He's not wasting the hardship. He's not wasting the trials. That's the path to holiness. And the church is the arena in which that happens. So expect it. But not only expect it, desire it. Do you want this? 
Do you want this? Do you want to experience the ongoing transformation of, of becoming holy as he is holy? Do you want to more and more become the holy people of God you are? Because you've been consecrated that way by God. It's one of the easiest things, I think, in the world to say yes to in theory. But to answer yes to this in practice means we commit ourselves to the church expecting and wanting this to happen. And the process of that is painful. And of course it's painful because not only are we being confronted with our own unholiness, our own sin, we're also confronted by other people in sinful and imperfect ways. Because it's not just you or me individually who's going through this process. It's all of us simultaneously going through this process, being refined from unholiness to holiness. But though it is imperfect, though it is painful, as Charles Spurgeon once said, the church is the dearest place on earth. Because why? Because it is the sacred, set-apart, beloved people of God. And because this is how we are transformed into the likeness of God from one degree of glory to another. This is how that happens. So be skeptical of a church that tries to inspire you to holiness. And definitely be skeptical of a pastor that sounds like a DJ for a Christian radio station. Okay, third, church is Catholic. As our liturgists often explain, the, the, the word Catholic means universal. So when we uh, affirm our belief in the Catholic church, we're affirming the, the universal church, not the Roman Catholic church. This universal quality of the church flows from the fact that Jesus has only one church. If Jesus has only one church, then it follows that that church doesn't just unite Christians in one particular geographic area. Like It's not just Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus that are now one church. It's also one church across time and across geography. And we see this particularly in verse 17, Ephesians 2, 17. That Jesus came, and what Paul is saying here, through his death and resurrection, he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. Right? He's talking here again about Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying that Jesus' salvation reaches across time and across the globe to create this universal church. What does it mean that the Gentiles were far off and the Jews were near? There's actually multiple meanings to that. But in terms of time, for centuries, the redemptive work of God came through the Jewish people. Right? It was the Israelites. They were the ones who trusted in God. They were the ones who received God's covenantal promises. They were the ones who looked for the day that the Messiah would come. So if you were a Gentile born in those centuries, in those days, that was a tough deal. Because the only way to experience the salvation of God, unless God made some miraculous exception, the only way to experience the salvation of God was to hitch your wagon to the Israelite people. And that's why Paul says back in verse 12, remember at that time you were separated from Christ. But Jesus ushers in this new paradigm that regardless of what era you are born in, or regardless of what family you're born in, salvation comes only through him. So faithful Israelites were those who looked ahead to the Messiah. Faithful Christians are those who look back to the finished work of Jesus. So there's one people across the generations. The same is true for geography. Um, God uh, instructs the Israelite people to build first a tabernacle and then eventually a temple in the city of Jerusalem. And that's where the presence of God dwells with the people. So if you want to be near God... You go to Jerusalem. That's how it worked under the old covenant. 
So the Jews were geographically near to God. They were the ones who lived in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem in that area. They were near to God. The Gentiles were the ones geographically far off. But now, through the work of Jesus, where is the dwelling place of God? Where does God dwell with the people? Paul says in verse 21 and 22, he says it's the church that is the holy temple. He says the church through the Holy Spirit is the dwelling place of God. Last week we, we considered why is it, why does Jesus say that it is to our advantage that he go away, he go, he go back to the Father in heaven and send the Holy Spirit. Here again we see the advantage of that. That the Spirit dwelling in Christians means that Christians themselves, the church, is the dwelling place of God. Or another way for maybe to think about this, uh, the temple is no longer a building in Jerusalem. The temple now has legs. And therefore, regardless of where you live, be it in a leading global city of millions, or Centralia, Pennsylvania, population 10, because there's been an underground mining fire that's been raging for decades, If your faith is in Christ, you are part of his church, and you are where the dwelling place of God is. So in light of this, Liberty Church, own the privilege and responsibility of being the dwelling place of God in the Harrisburg region. It's not ours exclusively, but as a congregation, we are one expression of the universal church of Jesus. We are one expression of that holy temple that has legs and hands and eyes and mouths. And this is why we say sometimes that, that and why, why it's part of our vision as a church that we seek to live and speak and serve as the very presence of Jesus. It's not just a phrase that sounds cool. It's rooted in who we actually are because the Spirit dwells in us. And it's why also we as a church seek to cultivate a deep passion and love for this place. But in Harrisburg, most of us are terrible at that, aren't we? I think, I think many in our city, many in our region have a chip on our shoulder that as a, as a region kind of with a small city at the center, this place isn't quite as cool or significant as other places in the world. And especially if you are under the age of 35, Tell me you haven't thought about moving away from here sometime in the last couple years. I've talked with almost all of you, so I know the reality of this. No doubt you've thought about moving away, and maybe even if you're over 35, that's true too. In central Pennsylvania, we suffer uh, from the brain drain. I don't know if you're familiar with that concept, where uh, people grow up here, um, people who show promise in certain fields, they move to bigger cities like Philly or Pittsburgh or Baltimore uh, or D.C., or New York, right? Talented people tend to go other places. And I don't mean that as like a veiled insult. Uh, like did, did he just call me like not talented? Um, whatever I'm saying about you, I'm saying about me, because uh, I live here too, so just, just take it that way. Um, in, the, in the eyes of the world, right? Think about this. In the eyes of the world, Harrisburg will never be as significant or important as New York City, or Washington, D.C., or London or Tokyo, uh, it will never have the influence on culture that those cities have. But because the church is universal, because God dwells here, this place is just as significant in the eyes of God. Right? There are, of course, legitimate reasons for people to move from here, and some of you will. But for Christians, I want you to really wrestle with this, to chase significance and look for significance somewhere else. That is not a valid reason for us as Christians to move away. 
So what can you do with all this? Ask God to give you a deep love and affection for this place. Right? Because this is a place that God loves. Yours is a neighborhood that God loves. With people God loves. It is a place where God himself dwells and has been and is and will be actively at work through the men and women of his church. So whether you live here another year or whether we put you in the ground here, love this region as a place where God dwells. Lastly, the church is apostolic. Apostolic. Verses 19 and 20. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. When we say that the church is apostolic, it means that it's founded on the apostolic gospel and that it's called to fulfill the apostolic mission. And I don't assume that you like, know, have a, like a working definition for either of those, so let me explain that. Um, the church is founded on the gospel delivered by Jesus to the apostles and then faithfully passed on from the apostles to other leaders in the church to the church and then on to, to our day, years later. And the church is what continues that apostolic mission. The apostolic mission is summarized in Matthew 28. Jesus calls his disciples, his apostles specifically, to go and make disciples of all the nations of the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. So to say that the church is apostolic, when we say, what's the church? The church is apostolic. That's a commitment to the purity of the truth of the gospel. We believe that the the highest authority in teaching us the truth of the gospel comes in Scripture. These 66 books of the Old and New Testament. But where creeds like the Apostles' Creed, creeds like the Nicene Creed, have been so vital in the history of the church is because having access to Scripture in your own language, let alone on a smart device on your phone, having access to it in your own language is only a luxury of the past 500 years. Before the invention of the printing press and before the Protestant Reformation, unless you were part of the church's leadership, it was almost unheard of for you to have access to Scripture for your own use, for your own study. And so hymns and creeds were memorizable ways of faithfully passing along core truths of the gospel from one generation to another. And I continue, as as we're in this series this summer, as I'm reading about the creed, I continue to grow in my depth of appreciation for, for what the creed is. And think about this, because I think Bob set that up really well when we said it together this morning. As we affirm our belief, as we say those words together, we are in that moment participating in it. Right? Reciting those words unites us in that moment with the people of God from all ages, from all places, who are committed to that truth of the gospel. Now, beyond growing in our appreciation for the creed itself, this should also make us passionately committed to the faithful preservation and dissemination of gospel truth. Passionately committed to faithful preservation and dissemination of gospel truth. Right? We must faithfully pass along what has been faithfully passed along to us. We must defend what has been defended for us. Not a few men and women have died that we might know this and have access to this. Not a few. And not to mention the pressure that comes in each and every age to compromise. 
right? Our generation is only unique. If you, if you look around the world and you go, wow, there's a lot of attempts to compromise the gospel, the only unique aspect of that are the specific ways that we're tempted to compromise the gospel. In every age, there is pressure. Pressure comes to compromise in one way or another. But here's the thing. The gospel, the truth of the gospel, that is not yours and mine to change. It is not ours to tweak to meet our needs and our preferences. It is ours, but only as it has been faithfully passed along, and it is ours to preserve and disseminate faithfully to the generations that come. Now, compromise isn't the same thing as contextualization. I just want to mention that really briefly. There is definitely a need to help people in our day grasp that the gospel is not just good news in general, but is, is good news for us in the things that we face in our day-to-day lives. Right? There are timely and there are helpful ways to speak about the timeless truths of the redemptive work of God. That's contextualization, not compromise. But the question that you and I need to ask ourselves over and over again is this. What is my starting point? What is my starting point? Right? When we seek to understand what the church is and, and, and what the church is called to be and do in the world, do we start with ourselves and our preferences? Do we start with culture? Do we start with sociology or psychology? Do we start with pragmatism? Just survey the the landscape and see what churches or groups seem to be doing something that's making visible impact. I think there's I think there's some good stuff in all of that. We have to consider culture as we think about being faithfully present in our day and in the people that God has called us to be among. There's a lot to be gleaned from social sciences. There's a ton of wisdom in considering what appears to be working. But all of those things are the wrong starting point. Right? And at the end of the day, to start with any other point besides the apostolic gospel as contained in Scripture, however effective or fruitful it might appear to be, at the end of the day, you're just playing around. You're just playing around. At the end of the day, it's just, it's just something that looks effective masquerading as the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So may we become passionately committed to the faithful preservation and dissemination of gospel truth. And practically, how you can begin to do this, or how you can continue doing this, saturate yourself in this apostolic, authoritative word of God. Learn from this what the church is and why Jesus established it. Start with Ephesians 2. Keep diving into this passage that we're looking at today. Um, Read the book of Acts. Ask God to reset and to recalibrate your understanding of the church. And then come back over and over again to, what is my starting point? Because that's not something we can just do one time and assume that we've got it set. There's a drift that will pull us away unless we come back to that starting point over and over again. I know we've covered a lot today, and there's a lot more, and I'm excited this fall. We're going we're gonna to do a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, which is all about problems facing the church. Uh, we're going to call the series a beautiful mess, because that's exactly what the church is. And we're going to find hope for what the church can be, because Jesus has established it, and we're going to wrestle with the realities of the difficulty of living that out, because it's messy. So I hope that this whets our appetite. Don't even wait till 1 Corinthians. Start now. But I hope this whets your appetite to know more and to more faithfully live out this calling of what the church is. 
But I'll close with this, just bringing it all together. Because there is one church, experience the beauty of the communion of saints and start here in this room. Because the church is holy, expect and desire it to be this arena in which the holiness of God does battle with the unholiness in your own heart and in our hearts collectively. And don't expect it to be tranquil or comfortable. Expect it to be good. Because the church is universal, cultivate a deep love and affection for the Harrisburg region and see the significance of this place in the eyes of God. And because the church is apostolic, saturate yourselves in a biblical understanding of what the church is. Become passionately committed to faithfully preserve and to spread gospel truth. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you have done a work in establishing the church that we are just barely scratching the surface of, of the significance. We, we struggle to see in our day-to-day life, uh, weighed down by, the, by the, the activities of life, weighed down by the circumstances and difficulties of, of life, just what you have done in pushing back the darkness in the world, storming the gates of hell by your church. I confess, I need to be renewed constantly in your vision for what the church is. And I pray you would do that in all of us, collectively, uh, that we would see more and more, Jesus, the worth of what you have done for us, but the worth also of what we get to do in response to that, because you have made us your people. You have consecrated us and set us apart as your own. Wherever, Holy Spirit, you are bringing renewal, where you're bringing conviction, pray that we would come with all of that to this table this morning and that we would see at this table that Jesus, you have done the definitive work that ensures you will carry it out to completion and that we would find our hope and we find our confidence to be the church you have called us to be by looking at the finished work of Christ, by again clinging to that on our behalf. We pray this in your name. Amen.